Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on The Payoff. John Bull is a legend in the TV news industry. He's won 99 Emmys. He's also won 13 Edward R. Murrow Awards. That's basically like winning an Oscar. He has completed 13 Ironman triathlons, and he is also an author. But most importantly to John, he is 12 years sober. Another number he'll tell you about are his two DUIs, which led to a very public fall from grace, rehab, the gift of desperation, and this incredible life that John shares with us today. He's got an amazing story, which includes being an incredible investigative reporter. I mentioned all the awards, but knocking on doors of crack houses and just fighting crime, right, in the streets of Louisville. Uh, now he helps to fight the stigma of addiction, and he tries to carry the message. He does carry the message, as you will hear in this podcast. Great message of sobriety here, but first, Kevin Souza. John Bull. That's me. Hey, what's up, man? Are you at home in Louisville? Yeah, I'm at home. I go. I work uh, on the evening news anchor, so I go 2.30 to 11.30. Oh, I know all about you, buddy. You, you've got, by the way, so how this works is I'll give an intro about you, and then we'll go right into this conversation. Um, yeah, yeah, I listened to a couple podcasts. I see your format. It's excellent. I just listened to the whole Mark Capelta thing. It blew my mind. We, I was an intern in Green Bay when he started, uh, when he was there. No kidding. And yeah, we went on a. Actually, I I got the internship. They had us the intern candidates follow around a reporter on a story, and then take their material, shoot a stand up, and put their own story together. So I followed Sapelta around on a school board story, and then it blew me away. And also, I have to say this: he's got to be one of the only people I've heard of who didn't get into rehab through some kind of consequence. It was like, you know what? I got a problem. I need to get in. You like know, that, I thought the, I thought the same thing. Yeah, Mark Sapelsa, for folks who don't know, go back and listen to the episode, right? He's a news anchor from Chicago. He's a, a, a Midwest guy. And he was a guy, too, John, with that story. And it's it's interesting because he's a card-carrying alcoholic, and he, he, he claims it and he lives it, but he didn't have a major consequence. It was like he, he, he saw that jumping-off point coming, and he stopped. Uh, no, and he went to the same place I went. I went to Hazelden when my life blew up, and I would have to say every single person in my wing of 18 guys in my dorm were in there from consequence. One was an intervention, and everybody else had lost their job, had gone to jail, had lost their wife, some major consequence. And I've gone to, I don't know, I was doing the math the other day, maybe a maybe a thousand meetings here in my almost 12 years. And I would have to say, after listening to everybody's stories over all those meetings, that like, I would say roughly, and you tell me if you disagree, like I think about 50, 60% of people in recovery are there through consequence and 40 to 50% are there because it just wasn't working for them anymore in some way, shape or form. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. For me, it was consequence. How about you? 
Oh, it was definitely consequence. <laughs> it was. Uh, so he, now hold, hold on. So ninety nine. You've got here's a guy, and I ninety nine Emmys. You've got ninety nine. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And you are beyond established as far as the TV news industry is concerned. We're going to get into your life and your career accolades. I had to mention that off the top. But so you've got ninety nine Emmys now. But what was the consequence? The final straw. I got two DUIs in about two years, a little over two years. In 2008, coming back from uh, Keeneland Racecourse uh, with the, drinking with the boys, my friends in low places. Um, my wife was sick, couldn't come with me, drove back, got a DUI, got suspended. At this, at this time, you're anchoring the news in, in, in Louisville. Yep. Okay. I, I was. I was the Ron Burgundy, you know, anchoring a day shift, number one newscast, uh, like 70 Emmys at the time. Like, didn't you talk about grandiosity? I thought I couldn't be touched. Got a, got a DUI. Uh, got suspended. Went for uh, uh, alcohol assessment. They made me go do that. Did the the whole alcohol assessment thing, which I didn't realize at the time, was like a, a process, a multi week process. I got my verdict. And it and I had already decided must have a problem. I know I have a problem. I gotta stop drinking. Got the verdict back from the from the counselor saying uh, you're not alcohol dependent, which means you're not an alcoholic and you're not alcohol abusive. And I said what? And he goes, I know you're thinking, how in the world? I just got a DUI. How how can I not be? How can you not be alcohol abusive? And he said because that's how you test out here. It is possible. So I went right back to drinking tried to control it but um as i learned quickly and i stopped for about three months and but as i learned that whole that saying about um you know wh while you were stopped drinking your your disease was doing push-ups out in the parking lot it came back with a vengeance and i was doing stuff i'd never done before like hiding booze and binge drinking and getting a head start before parties and dr stopping on the way home on friday nights and drinking and that led me to spiral out of control and uh and in 2010, you're a sports guy, so you remember my final night. You remember the big Zenyatta race at Churchill Downs in the Breeders' Cup trying to... Absolutely. To, yeah, trying to retire undefeated, one of the biggest sports events of all time. I did the same exact thing, man. I had to anchor a two-, three-hour show in the morning before that, did that, got off, met my friends, and started winning and drinking and winning and drinking and tried to drive home. And I started driving home, and I'm on the phone booking a radio appearance the next day with, with uh, one of the shows here and realized I had taken a wrong exit. And then and I thought to myself, my God, dude, you're, you're smashed. And so I pulled off in an exit and parked the car and just said, you got to just chill and cool out, sleep a little bit till you, you come back here. And knock on the window, police officer, DUI number two, I read uh, that, that your second DUI was in a parking lot, and now I know how yep. that <laughs> how yep. that came together. Yep. So uh, DUI number two uh, immediately fired. They wouldn't even talk to me. He fired me over the phone, even though I told him, "All right, I'm, you know, I'm going to Hazelden. Already got a spot booked." And and that's how it happened. So the the a guy whose job was anchor and investigative reporter who humiliates other people for a living uh, became the ultimate humiliated so when that happens to you that second DUI you know the jig is up but also the public now 
I don't know if you want to use the phrase turns on you, but you, you, you know, your book is called, uh, what is it on the news in the news? Yeah. And you are now in the news. Uh, the book you can get on Amazon, by the way, on the news in the news, John Bowl. But you're 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 arrested now, and you are the news. What kind of ego deflation or smashing is that like? Or or did it take you a little bit to get there? No, no, it was beyond. I, I mean, I figured my life was over. I thought about hanging myself downstairs. Uh, I'm one of the rafters, um, one of the supports, um, but I didn't have enough guts to do that because I'm a coward. And um, and I, and I was scared about the future because I knew I, I couldn't drink anymore. Um, but fortunately for me, I mean, I mean, and that I got, I got so beat up on and piled up. But luckily, this was ju- you know this is 2010, so this is just at the beginning of the Facebook social media ability to crush you. Uh-huh. So I could I could tune that out pretty well and just hide. But it was terrible, and it lasted for years and years. And even still, 12 years later comes up once in a while somebody will just use it as a as a card to try to troll me on something when they're unhappy with some story i've done or something but but no it was the ultimate ultimate humiliation and that's why i wrote that book um because i was sitting there in rehab and i I had always wanted to write a book anyway uh about life lessons learned in the industry which is what the front half of the book is about but then i thought man i've got the the greatest opportunity to do what journalists do and that is take you places that you don't normally go and i can take you into what it's like to 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 be the guy now humiliated and uh, take you to the unemployment office and take you to the hate and take you to the inspiring things that happen to you uh, and take you through rehab and show you what happens there, which was the, the greatest one month of my life was, was rehab learning about myself. What did you learn about yourself? I learned what a, what a horrible piece of crap I was. I learned about my character defects and, and I, I thought at the time this happened, I thought I was a pretty good person and I could point to specific examples of things that I had done. But when I got in there and I had heard when I got to Hazelden that the biggest thing in your four weeks was at the midway point, your peer review. And so, you know, pretty much every day in a unit of 18 guys, you're doing like a, a peer review. And it was a big deal at Hazelden. You, you uh, spend a lot of time uh, based on the time you spent with that person writing up, you know, answers to all these questions and things you're going to say during the peer review. And pretty much up until mine, all the peer reviews were positive and the counselors were getting mad. They were saying, you know, like, this isn't yearbook signing. What a great guy you are. Like, <laughs> this is someone's, this is someone's life on the line. And yeah. like, you got to get really There's honest. Stop with the people pleasing. Yeah. You got to stop it. And you got to tell them what's really going on with them. And they could never, they could never get people to really do that until it was my turn. And here, these I got I got destroyed. And you know, I always tell people like you can when you get like today. If I get a couple of emails about a story, you know, you're, that was terrible. You're a terrible person. I can dismiss it. But when eighteen out of the eighteen guys whose lives are on the line, but spending every minute with you in rehab, crush you, then you got a serious problem, man. And that's that's when I realized what a horrible person I was. So what do you do from there? I mean, so you're in rehab. I, I guess this happens. How how long in into treatment? That's at the two. That's at the two week point of the four weeks of Hazelden. Is that is that peer review? But I mean, I got to tell you, like off the start, I was. I mean, I remember my first several days. I would go into the basement where the laundry facilities were and turn the dryer on, full and just to hide the sounds of my sobbing 
wailing and sobbing of, in anguish of, you know, where my life was, what I had done to my family, what I had done to my career, what I had done to myself. Um, it's very public. I, for, for, I mean, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's a bottom for all of us. But for you, it was unique in the, in the fact that it was very, very public. But also something very unique about you, or not unique, right, if you buy into this program. And you, yeah, no, and, not, and, and, not unique, exactly. Yeah, but but exactly. but 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 your 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 rise again. I mean, if you buy in, right, and then you go to any lengths, uh, that's this is my experience. Clearly, it's yours. Uh, you can do anything. I mean, now you're back on the air for how many years? Nine years? Ten years? Uh, no, this is this is like twelve. I had one year off, so like eleven years yeah. now that I've been at uh, the other station, Wave. Uh, I was off for a full year before I got hired, and yeah, it's. I mean, it's, it's, I know your podcast is about life on the other side. It's yeah. fantastic. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's but, crazy, but it's dude. A, you know what it is? You know, Pete, it's a little thing. It's not, oh, I'm, I'm back to evening news anchor and winning Emmy Awards. It's not that at all. It's being able to look at my granddaughter or my, my, my daughter and with my grandkids and have the trust in her eyes to know grandpa can take my, my kids, you know, the, the the kids can have their grandpa take them and I don't have to worry about them stopping and drinking. Yeah. You know, I can trust my dad with the kids. And, and that is like deep in your soul rewarding those little kinds of things that, that to see the happiness in your kid's eyes when, uh, when they see a different person, you know, though that is, that is the reason to do this. Yeah. I mean, I mean don't yeah. get me wrong. Don't get me wrong, man. Like drinking, worked for me yeah me too like it's it, a blast it worked it, <laughs> yeah it worked for me and i'm not gonna lie about this people know me i'm an honest person there are a lot of times in my life when i'm i'm mad like i got into a squabble at a meeting one time with a guy who was going on and on about how happy he is that he has this disease that he of, of addiction that he is he, he's just so happy and he, he's glad it turned out this way and i was and i was like no i am not happy that I have a chronic, progressive, fatal, if untreated disease. I'm happy I have the tools to manage it and be a better person, but I am not happy about having a chronic, progressive, fatal, if untreated disease. I'm just not. Um, but that does, you know, that's not the end of my life. Like I can, I can flourish in, in more ways, which is, you know, what I feel I'm doing. That's clearly what you're doing. Uh, and, and I want to get back into your story a little bit. You, you grew up because I want to get to the buildup of, of, of who, how John Bull became John Bull in sobriety and, and as a person. You grow up in Wisconsin. And what's that like? What's life in Wisconsin like growing up? Is there, is, where's, al where's alcohol and all this? <laughs> how, how was it? Uh, every weekend for four years at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, which, by the way, I had to drive by UW-Eau Claire, where I graduated from, on my way to rehab. <laughs> drove right by the dorm, right by the party spots. Every weekend for four years, I don't think we ever went to a bar. Back in 1980 through 84 when I was there, uh, you would take $2 uh, and go to a house party, all you can drink. And what, what life was like in Wisconsin is taking a, a beer bong through your belt loop like your holster, taking it to these parties, <laughs> and doing uh, – I remember one night I did – we marked it off to see how big of a beer bond we were actually doing in increments of 12 ounces. And it held 64 ounces. And we always talk about who's going to be the first one to do a 64 ounce beer bond. 
And one night I did like a, a 32, a 48, and a 64-ounce beer bong in 15 minutes. It's like a 12-pack of beer. And I got done. I got done with a 64-ounce, and I started shaking violently. And they hauled me outside. He's going to throw up. I'm like, no, I'm not going to throw up. They hauled me outside, and I was shaking violently. And it gradually subsided and kept on drinking then the rest of the night. Got home a couple weeks later for Christmas break. And I was telling that story at the bar at one of our family gatherings. And they walked over to the pile of newspapers like the Chicago Tribune. And there was a story right on the top about a college student who died from alcohol poisoning from doing too big of a beer bong. It was a jolt to the system. And he started shaking violently and he died. So there it is. I'm like reading how close I came to dying. How do you, Pete, think that affected my drinking after that? Not, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Kept doing sixty-four ounce beer box. Not a bit. And what is what is? Are there any consequences when you're in college? Are you are are you experiencing negative impacts? No, no. I I've always been the highest achieving alcoholic that that I've I've ever heard of. I mean, um, I've done thirteen Ironman triathlons, uh, all these awards, uh, fishing. I, I devour life. Got straight A's in college. Uh, when I was in college, I was like news director of the radio station, did my own outdoor sports show, got straight A's, worked work study, partying on Thursday through Saturday nights, uh, did all this stuff. Like there was no time to sleep. And yet I, I did it all and drank alcoholically all the way back then. And did you always know you wanted to get into journalism? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I, um, I, I, the only thing I was good at was writing. And so I looked at all these careers and it basically came down to either being like an English teacher or getting into journalism. And I tried journalism. I went to UW player because it was accredited, like the best school in the state to go to for journalism. And I, and I tried print, then radio, then TV. And I just love TV because TV combines words and pictures and sound and writing and all that. So, and that's where I've been ever since. And I, I actually had a interesting talk with my wife one night. This actually when this whole thing blew up for me. So this is a number of years ago, and we were. She was talking about uh, retiring, quitting. She's an engineer, not happy with her career. We were, we were. I said, well, I said to her, if you had to do all over again, your life, uh, what you know, what would you change from your college selection to your career to where you live and what you do? And we talked about that for a while, what she would do differently. And then we sat there for a minute. And she said, What about you? And I had never thought of that before in my whole life. And I thought about it long and hard. And I, actually, I can tell you honestly, I, I came to the conclusion I would go to the same college. I would name the same vocation. I would get into journalism. I would, I would actually even love and prefer to work in the city that I work in right now, Louisville, Kentucky. Now, how many people can look back in their lives and say that? Well, like, how many, and, and, and dude, how many alcoholics? A lot, a lot of what you're talking about is, you know, this is, massive periods of your life where you're in active addiction but you know it's yeah. it's so it's it's rare and and i want to tell people i have an insight as john talks about his career because we're members of the same fraternity career wise and you are the last of the mohicans in a sense where you, you're an anchor you're out there you're reporting the news but you also you cut your teeth on the streets and you still go back to the streets and you still knock yeah. on doors of crack houses yeah. And you ask yeah, people. Yeah, there are a lot of divas in the industry. You're right. There's uh, not many old school people, right? Um, I, I promise you, there are not anymore. And and it's getting uh, 
I don't want to say it's getting worse, but it's just a different time. There's not as many people that are willing to go out there uh, with the courage that somebody like you did to, to report and make a difference on the street. Where did, where did you find that, that zeal for, for, for the job? Because honestly, I used to, I was such an alcoholic that by the time I had to do stuff like that, I was usually taking something or drinking something before. I mean, I could, so I could get through it. Where'd you find the courage to do that? That was all due to a advisor I had at UW-Eau Claire named Henry Lippold, um, a, a giant in the industry, a guy that would just, um, you know, he would be there at midnight while you're still editing on your on your stories or your sports show or your, the newscast we put together. He, totally him, a total motivator. You know, we all have a teacher or a coach or a prof or a parent in our lives that, that kind of changed our lives that that was it for me it was henry lippold we'll get back to this conversation in a second but right now a word from our sponsors the dysfunction that you are greeted with when you go to these neighborhoods or or, or a lot of these stories i'm talking about some of the crime stuff and some of the the, the uh the drug houses and stuff what's what's the most riveting thing that's happened to you on the job Oh, um, an interpersonal, you know, uh, situation where you've. Okay. Well, the, I, I can answer that. Uh, that's, which also answers the question about, are you afraid for your safety? Um, this would be about 2009 ish. Um, my wife gets up to take, uh, one of my kids to school, comes back in the house immediately sobbing. And so is my kid crying, tells me that, uh, the entire house has been graffitied up with death threats spray-painted death threats. And so I get up and go outside and look, and sure enough, the garage door and that whole half of the house graffitied up with death threats. I had just aired a story the night before on, uh, this is another interesting story on, uh, you know, these, these stories you see a lot in media on um, dr- uh, drunk but still driving, you know, the guys that, multi-DUI guys that, yeah. lost their license but are still driving and then the media catches them driving kind of a tired story but it wasn't back then <laughs> uh, that I, I had just aired and I don't think that that guy that I did that story on though I don't think he was responsible for it but I'll tell you a story about that here in a second yeah. about the insanity of alcoholism but but finished out the story so we had to get uh, the station got uh, 72 hour police protection for me and uh, that and I had to you know, repaint the house and all that, and they never did catch whoever did it. I still don't know who did it because I had done aired several stories, drug house stories, and that too. But Louisville's a small Amish community, bro. Like people know where you live. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and it's rough too. I mean, I've been there several times. There's there's certain areas that are yeah, you know, it's like any big city. Uh, there's yep, there, there's some yep. there's some darker areas for sure. I, I know. I was talking to uh, to Nick about this the one time you you ask a woman, hey, do do you or, or do people around here sell drugs? And she says, we don't sell drugs. We do drugs. And you yeah, say, what, no, was, what, kind yeah. of, what kind of drugs do you do? And she says, it's none of your business. <laughs> the, yeah, no, that was the greatest confrontation I've had doing this, these drug house stories. This was actually a story on failure. Uh, they, they called all these press conferences, prosecutors, state's attorney's office, saying they're going to start prosecuting the dealers in, uh, in these overdose deaths. And, and then the story was about how, how they don't. Uh, but I was at this one particular house where a mom was grieving because her son 
had died from an overdose there, and then they didn't do anything to the dealers, and they were still dealing. So I go out, and I'm doing undercover, and I'm showing them still dealing, and I go up to do the confrontation uh, about all this stuff that's been going on there. And she says, we don't deal drugs, we do drugs. And, yeah, that, that was fantastic. <laughs> and another time. No, we'll, oh, go ahead. I, I want to tell you, though, uh, people ask me about the insanity of alcoholism and, like, where you were at your most insane point. Back to that story I was just telling you about. The, 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 the drinking and still driving. Like 11, DU, 11 DUIs with still driving. So I'm doing an 11 DUIs with still driving story. And so I, I got to get the money shot of the guy driving. And so this is, remember when I told you, like, after the first DUI and I was spiraling back down again, right? Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm on a Friday night. I'm working overtime sitting down, sitting in the back of the surveillance van outside this guy's house, waiting to catch him on camera, getting in a car and driving again, which I eventually did catch him doing. But anyway, so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, damn, this is boring. You know what I could use right now? Like a beer. So I drive up to the corner, Speedway, and get a, <laughs> like a tall boy, come back, drink it, go back to the store, get another one, come back, I'm sitting in the back of the station surveillance van. Is anybody with you, by on. the way? You got a photog? Or? No, no, no. Okay. No, I do my own work. Okay. And I'm sitting there drinking beers in the station vehicle, waiting for a guy to come out and get video of him uh, drunk and still driving. <laughs> like, how insane is that, man? Yeah. I mean, it makes it, it's, but you're talking to me, so it makes sense. But to someone <laughs> else on the outside, it's, it's jarring. It is. It is. When I look back at that, actually at the time, I thought that made sense. Like that, you're so far gone when you're doing stuff like that. Well, but you're having success at the, at the same time, right? I mean, this is before you stop drinking. Obviously, how big does the ego get when you, you you're constantly getting recognition, accolades? You mentioned seventy Emmys before you get these two DUIs. And, and have this fall from grace. How, how, how big is the ego at this point? Well, it was so, so big that the, the guys in, in rehab all finally said to me one day, they're like, dude, you haven't even mentioned your kids or nothing about you. you think about how, how many Emmys you've got, what your ratings are. Like, yeah, I was off the charts, man, when it comes to grandiosity. Yeah. And I just, I, just thought, I just thought I couldn't be touched. And, I, and, you know, I also thought, like, I earned it. Like, I worked really hard, 14-hour days, weekends in the edit bay, taking my work with me on vacation. Like, I thought I earned it, and, and I didn't. What do you think about – I talked to a couple other news anchors about this. You, uh, you mentioned Mark Sapelsa, Courtney Friel. Um, do, do you think and, – and, and both of them have mentioned this kind of coming there's, – there's a lot of alcoholism, abuse in, in the industry because of what you're seeing what you're living, what you're dealing with. Uh, did you find that at all in, in your case? Oh, well, I have a, a interesting story related to that. I, right after I went to rehab and got a job and was back and was speaking and having good luck speaking and getting through to people, um, I got asked by the Society of Professional Journalists to do a speech. And I said, sure. Um, and what, what do you want the talking points to be on? What do you want the topic to be on? And I said, we want you to talk to fellow journalists about how this industry and this career is more conducive to producing uh you know addiction and and in situations like yours because of the stress and all that and i had to tell him i'm sorry this is an equal opportunity disease like the number one thing i learned 
in rehab and beyond in meetings is it's equal opportunity. There is no, there, there is, there is no, there's no career that leads to standings in, in, in addiction. Huh. I and, like that. And, and, and I'll go ahead, I'll go ahead and I'll share something with you right now. That's the single most important thing I ever learned uh, in this recovery path. It wasn't in rehab. It was in a meeting. This guy in Louisville named Burns Brady. He's like the Methuselah of recovery, a former addiction doctor, and then 30, he was 30 years clean uh, himself. And telling us a story about how the, he used the term, those of us with addiction, with disease of addiction, uh, we were born a quart low, was the, was the metaphor he used for it. And then he explained that, that. That basically they through I, I believe he said human genome testing or whatever in the late nineties um, they were able to determine that eight to twelve percent of humans are born with low dopamine and low serotonin in their brain and and they never know it they don't know what it's like to feel normal to have normal levels of dopamine and serotonin um, and, and you can adjust serotonin through antidepressants, but there ain't nothing out there to adjust the dopamine until at some point in your life, when you don't realize that what normal is, you discover alcohol or drugs or gambling or porn or whatever boosts your dopamine in your brain, which carves your pathways that we all know to deliver the dopamine to the receptors faster. And then the addiction is on. Well, but and it, it, and so we didn't know any of that until we discovered something. And so that, that is why then, that the, what do we say, 8 to 10% of humans, some of the latest research shows, um, you know, are, are dealing with addiction. Yeah. Uh, that, 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 what that helped me with was like, it's not my fault. It's a genetic thing. It made total sense to me because when, I, when me and my family couldn't figure out when my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Ferguson, was calling my parents in. <laughs> The two most, the two most wonderful parents in the world, yeah. and saying we don't know what's wrong with John. Same, we think same he must thing. be doing something to, because he's irritable, restless, discontented, always anxious. Like what is going on with him? Blaming them. Like nobody knew. I just had low dopamine in my brain. Did you have other alcohol? That's by the way. When you're telling me that story, I get a connection to you in that story. That I I uh, I tell other alcoholics or other people that gives me. That connection right there and that the, the feeling I get when hearing a story like that gives me the feelings. And I guess that dopamine, right, that that alcohol and drugs used to give me. It just gives me that. Uh, yeah, it, it's it, because I you can't hear that stuff enough. You know, if I hear it from you today, the way that my alcoholism acts up, you know, mentally, uh, I probably need to hear it from somebody else tomorrow. Because it's yes. a tw- it's a twenty four hour deal, right? We need to hear yes. we need to hear messages and get the gratitude like that. When 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 your family is looking at you and looking at your your uh, restless, irritable, and discontent uh, di- discontention as a kid, and then you become an alcoholic or you develop into one, was there alcoholism in your family? Did, did were they like, oh, okay, like you're like Uncle Billy, or or no? People, no, like, I didn't, I didn't know. Well, I knew that one of my grandfathers was because he used to camp at his property. He lived in a trailer on this farmland, and we used to go and spend weekends there, and we'd find bottles here and there. So I, I knew he was, but I didn't know the other one was. And then and then I found out after my journey started through this that he was as well. And I think the stats are, like, if one of your grandpas is out 
like you have a 40 some percent chance of being one. And if both of them are, it's like 90 some percent. So, um, yeah, I have two grandfathers who were, and then, but, but neither of my parents were. And, and uh, my dad to this day can just have a beer or two and be fine. I'll tell you what, like when I look back, I, I always try to look back on my life and find, try to determine when the wheels came off, like when I no longer had control. Do you ever do that? Uh, yeah, it's not too difficult for me because I totally f- – I, Nick gave you some bad information. I was a complete wreck. He, he told you I just liked the party. and He told me that. I, was, I got arrested several times. I, I mean, for me, I, the wheels came off when I, got into, when I got into college because school was out. And, you know, so I was in free fall but, uh, okay. right at that moment. But, but, but how about you? But there, there was an ex, there was actually a time in my life where, like, you know, back to my dad, like my dad and I would go ice fishing. And I mean, to be honest with you, about half the people who go ice fishing are going to either are, are going to get away from their wives <laughs> and about the other other half are going to drink excessively and get drunk. Uh-huh. It's like it is exactly like grumpy old men seen out on the lake ice fishing. Like that's true. And me and my dad were the outliers. Like we actually would go and not drink. And have fun. And and so I, I look back on that and think, damn, I used to be able to do this, do stuff like that. Like fishing was my was the last thing I had before drinking became a part of that too. Like um so uh anyway, as far as the where the wheels came off, boy, I don't know. I people always ask me like when I knew that I was an alcoholic because I could I really could control it through college, only a couple nights a week. Um I, the, where where I where the wheels came off for me where where I knew I was an alcoholic was in 2010, the night before the Ironman triathlon, Friday night. My wife was out of town, and the or actually let me back up a little bit. The 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 week a one week out the Ironman in Louisville used to always be the last Sunday and the last weekend in August, and uh, we were it was like 100 degrees. And I was all worried about the weather. So I looked up seven day forecast and it, Ironman day was for like, you know, 98 with a heat index of a hundred. Like, and I had been drinking. I had just gotten to the point where I was drinking every day. Okay. Finally, finally, my, maybe not drunk, but a couple of beers maybe, but I was finally drinking every day. And, but I said to myself, John, man, you got to cool out. Like you gotta, you're going to die in this Ironman. Uh, for those who don't know, the Ironman is 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike. 26 mile run, 140 miles. Takes takes like 12. How many how many of those have you done in your life, by the way? I have finished 13, and I have uh, I have DNF two of them. Welcome welcome to the um, human race with those two DNFs. Right. Thanks I'm for thir- joining. Thanks for joining us, for dude. 15. Yeah. Okay. So I'm sitting there going, damn man, you got to cool out. I'm like you're gonna die. You got to stop drinking right now. So I drank that night. Drank the next night. Drank the next night, whole time telling myself, you've got to suck it up. Now, you got three days, you can cool out. Drank all the way up till Friday night, wife goes out of town, and, like, I got to do the Ironman that weekend. What do you think I did, man? I went to the Speedway, got a 12-pack of beer, and sat there and drank a 12-pack of beer before I had to do 140 miles in 100-degree heat index. And what, how did your body respond to that? I finished, I actually finished. Not poorly, but I finished in the med unit throwing up buckets of just throwing up, like throwing up my toenail that was throwing up so bad. So you, by the way, any, any drugs in your story? No, 
no, no. I was always kind of uh, afraid of drugs. I did mushrooms uh, twice in my life in Madison on Halloween with a hundred thousand costumed people during college. Um, <laughs> Sounds interesting. I mean, that that was fun. Yeah. But that wasn't something I wanted to do, and I wasn't much of a weed guy. So no, no, and I, and I wasn't a hard alcohol guy. It was all beer. And so this situation with the Iron Man, this this is now towards the tail end of your drinking because you could tell like the, now the insanity is really yeah it's it's, yeah, it's taken hold. Yeah, that is beyond insane. As I sat in the med unit, going like you knew this was going to happen, and you did it anyway. But so that was August of 2010. The DUI number two was November 6th of 2010. So, like, what what happened in the interim? I wish I had been like Mark Sapelsa and said, man, I got a problem. I got to get it fixed. But I did not. It took a consequence of meteoric level. And and ev- everybody else that I met in rehab and most of the people I've met since, it took a major consequence. Before we uh, – well, I want to talk about – your recovery and what you what you did to, to to get and and what you do to stay sober, but how how was that covered in the in the media when you got this DUI? Did people kind of give you grace or did everybody cover it? Everybody covered uh, the first the first one. Uh, only my station covered it. Okay, um, and they pulled me aside and said we want to be fully transparent because we want to try to save your job, so we don't want to be accused of you know, hiding something, which is pretty cool. And yeah. And then, uh, the next one, it was in the newspaper and, and I think pretty much everywhere. I don't know. I, I hid, but it was on, I remember I was like top story right up there with five kids dying of fire and, and some rapist. And then John Ball gets uh, another DUI. I was top story. So you get, so you go into rehab, right? And then the key is not to be the top story in your mind. Um, and two weeks in, you said you get obliterated by your peer review, and then things start to change. What started to change on the back end of that peer review uh, for you? Like, when did you when did you really start to understand? Okay, I can't take myself too seriously if I'm going to do this. Well, the biggest breakthrough for me in rehab was um, I got an assignment on shame, the difference between shame and guilt, in my little book. And I'm in there in my room reading my little lesson on shame and guilt. And um, it, what I haven't brought up yet in this discussion is I had, uh, I was victim of uh, molestation when I was a, a young boy by a, na- by a neighbor kid, a young guy, young man in the neighborhood who I had since found out got to like three other uh. boys. So anyway, I-, I thought that I had dealt with that gotten past that and as a matter of fact there was like a there was a huge story in the media a number of years ago the catholic sex abuse lawsuit thing in louisville and 20 25 million dollar payout and i remember in my grandiose pompous ron burgundy self running around the newsroom going like hey why can't they get over it's been years later like i i I was molested i got over it like what's wrong with these people kind of thing right and so i'm sitting there reading my little lesson on shame and guilt and it it one of the pages said it got into um child sex abuse and said of someone having this happen in their background, it can man- it, it manifest itself in the following way. And Pete, it listed in front of my face, every one of my qualities of my character and 
persona that I never understood, like uh, becomes a perfectionist, uh, has no uh, male close friends, uh, you know, d- down the list, everything about myself that I never could understand why I was that way. I was looking at a list of it right in front of my face. And I, and I realized it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I just started crying. Like, oh, my God, I am to, to a great extent. Oh, and another one, of course, was, you know, uh, 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 prone to addiction. Uh, or flee reality through substances, I believe, was the wording on the page. And and I, I just started crying, like, oh, my God, I, like, I, this is a big part of why I am the way I am. It's amazing, and luckily, too. my Go ahead. My, um, my counselor walked in the door right at that moment and asked me what's up, told him the whole story that I just told you, and he said, that's a good thing. And he said, let's get up right now. And he got me down into some counseling. Um uh, for that sex abuse and that was a that was a big part of my that kind of started changing things right transparency and that and discovering that about myself that made me feel so much better that i finally understood why i was so jacked up right and then and then backing up a little bit um an important part of rehab for me was when i was you know turning the dryer on and sobbing and 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 wanting to kill myself that one of my one of my counselors said to me, John, you need to take advantage of this. I said, what? And he said, very few people in society ever get a one-month timeout chance to find out what makes them tick and how they can be better. And you, I know you don't want to be here, and I know you never would have chosen, but you're here, and you might as well take advantage of it. And that, so that I did. Is, I became, that, that, I, that hits me like a lightning bolt, dude, because it's so true. Yeah. So I, I, that did make sense to me. I said, oh, I might as well, this, you know, I'm pretty good in my whole life about being studious and getting after it when I got to get after it. And so I was, I was like the top student, uh, taking notes and doing what I'm supposed to. And, I, and so, uh, but that all led to, I got a great metaphor for you about my last day. Like I can tell you exactly when I was in rehab because I, the first day uh, I got to go outside of jogging or something, it was a 75 degree day in Minneapolis with snowstorms coming in snowstorms came in and it snowed i believe over 40 inches over the next 28 days to the point where you remember when the metrodome collapsed yes yes okay that was like my last day in rehab right yeah it it snowed so much the metrodome collapsed but on my last day i had had not much i had to do before catching my flight and i there's outside hazelden there's these little little lakes that guys ice fish on what is, it, is this late 2010 this is 2010 uh i yes this is late 2010 yep. yeah okay that's right I, that's right before yeah i got sober a year later but i remember the the vikings and the eagles had to play and they had to move yeah. they moved the game because the metrodome um yeah yeah collapsed okay that so go ahead one month yeah like all of hazelden's <laughs> pretty much underground with tunnels and all that they almost never have to come out so the snow didn't really matter uh, but he got, I had the privilege of like going for, they let me go for a walk like on my last day. And I, I, and I walked around and I sat on this bench and just like, I get emotional t- um, talking about it right now because the, it was, and I've never seen this before or since, like it was not snowing, but there was this microscopic, like granular little ice, tiny snowflakes, like almost like ice crystals floating down. And, and it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. 
like tiny wispy little flakes coming down. And when I, I sat there and I thought about like the beginning of my month was this horrible snowstorm and it's been snowing so horrible all the way through. And then now I'm finally feeling better about things. And like this, there's this, this lightness to my heart and to my feelings. And then here I got this ultra light snowfall coming down. It was like this, the, like God speaking to me. And, and I, and then I, I got ready to get up and I looked at this bench I was sitting on and it was donated by the family of some guy who killed himself uh, from addiction. Wow. And it made me think of the, the fact that, that the, the actual, the quote, the stat that Hazelden uses is one third, one third, one third, that basically one third of the people go there, uh, leave and never have another tr- problem about another third relapse and need more treatment. And then one third kill themselves. Uh, or, or I'm sorry, one third die of their addiction is the wording they use. And I didn't really, I thought that was bullshit. Uh-huh. Like when I heard that one third, come on. Yeah. And then, what I've learned since the 12 years since is that that counts suicide. And I think the one third will die of their disease is actually a low number. I think that's low. Um, when I thought it was bullshit in the beginning, but anyway, so I, I, I saw this bench and some guy who died and it just, I just felt so fantastic. Uh, when I left there, it's amazing. Uh, I'm, it's just a to- you're a totally different guy from that first day you walk in, uh, and it's ref- reflective of you. Do, you notice that stuff. You feel again, uh, and and you're in tune with the universe, and you know maybe your purpose or moments like that. That I didn't notice anything uh, before I got sober. I mean, I was just kind of just what's next? What's next? What's happening? You know, and and when I got sober and I gave myself time to stop and soak it up and, and take direction moments like that started to happen. And that's big because I think it shows, you know, 30 days without a drink and intense treatment. Here's where, here's where you are. Uh, it's, and, and, and by the way, talking to you, cause I, w- I went to Karen in Pennsylvania, a recovery center there. It makes me, I love AA cause anybody can walk through the door and, and if you got a buck, great. If you got more, great, but you don't have to pay anything. Just sit, don't cause a disturbance. Right. And you know, they've yep. never thrown anybody out of AA like, like yep. as a whole. And, but treatment is you, that moment you describe when you're sitting there looking at that paper about the, the trauma from the abuse that is specific a lot of times to, to, to treatment. And it's amazing how, we can understand ourselves through some of that real, and that's hard work, right? And that's what you're, you're talking to me about. You're doing the work, right? I mean, that's because AA yeah. sobriety, it's not a talk show and you and I are great at talking you specifically. Um, I'm dazzled uh, by you, but at the same time, it's a walk show and you've done it. You've done the action. I always say Marshawn Lynch, maybe he needs it because I just saw he got a DUI, but he'd be the best. Uh, he'd be the best alcoholic ever because he's about, about, I'm about that action boss. You know, and it's about it's about action, right? Well, it's a, yeah, it's about it's about the twelve steps. I mean, I had a it's funny. I had a a, a sponsor at one point who used, he used to crush people at meetings after they would start talking about their reliance on meetings, and he would be like, "Listen, man, there's nothing in this book about meetings. Like this, this the twelve. It's about twelve steps. Like you shouldn't be relying on you know. Anyway, I don't know if you should have done that or not, but." It, but he did bring, there was one truth in what he was saying, which was like the, the 12 steps change your life. And it was funny because when I got hired, 
and I was on the on the morning news. And you know how you, you very well, Pete, know morning news like you're looking for something while you're getting through this morning show. Talk about the dude during the commercial breaks and just keep you going because yes. you're dying. You're on fumes, right, from <laughs> yes. sleep schedule. And so I used to tell the people around me who were absolutely not alcoholic or addicted to anything, and they would ask me all these questions about the 12 steps. And I would tell them, four, tell them about fourth, fifth step, and just tell them about different things. And I think that they were, they were drawn in by the way I was living my life. Like, I, I would like to think that, and I'm pretty sure – I did have an influence on them because they're asking me all these questions and wondering like how I was doing these things. And, and w when I got to talk about the 12 steps, they actually w were asking things like, you know, that sounds like, like I should do that. And I said, exactly. Like the, I think everybody should do the 12. The 12 steps are a fantastic roadmap to life and living a better life. Um, and I, you know, I, I really believe that like in my, in my life to this day, I am, I'm utilizing, all the slogans, the pause when agitated. My God, how many times do I do that? <laughs> how many times does that save my ass? Pause when agitated. Um, the biggest thing in a TV newsroom you can attest to is it, when I want to rant about what everybody's ranting about something and they come to me like, you got to go say something to the boss. They'll listen to you. No, I'm keeping my side of the street clean. Yeah. I'm not going to do their inventory for them. Like that has saved me so many times and, and helped me live a better life. Like, I'm not all up in – everybody's always angry about the newscast, and we have this in, we have that, don't have that in. Go tell the boss we need to do this. Go tell the producer this. No. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be the best news anchor in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm going to sell all these stories and keep my side of the street clean the best it can be. And that's – I mean, not only does it work with our business, but it works in, in, in other businesses too. But, you, I, yeah. I, man, can I connect to that. I mean, just like people, you know, the bitching and I mean, you that is just you're going to find that anywhere, you know, especially if people are like, well, I don't like this station. I'm going to go to this station because this station's I'm like wherever you go, there you are. And you're going to have the same the same contention and also the same positivity. But that's so interesting. You mentioned that because I try to I try to do the same thing. And sometimes my ego tells me. Oh no! Today's the day you got to take a stand. You know this is this is it. Like and it's like, <laughs> right. I mean, sometimes I'm like, yeah. you know what? They're right, and I'm getting screwed, or or screw them. I'm getting screwed, and you know, a lot of times as I've learned, as I've, and I also think it's a beauty of getting uh, older is sometimes just keeping your side of the street clean and not doing anything is a great. Yeah, way. although you know there is the, the line about we don't let people walk over us. Yeah, so you got to stand up for yourself. Um, but yeah, the whole. Pause when agitated and and keep your side of the street clean. Oh, and backing way up, the probably the most important slogan, the the line about changing our playgrounds and playmates, man. That is what I that is the most important thing I would pass on to anybody else. That's what I had to do. Was that and now how was that difficult for you? Because you're kind of a man about yeah. town, everybody knows you, so people gravitated towards no, you. No, no, not for those reasons. Um for reasons of like everybody has a group they connect with in their life might be your college bros might be your first job bros might be your high school bro for, for me it's my high school posse the same posse that uh, would come to louisville twice a year once to go to keeneland actually twice to go to keeneland and then and then uh, kentucky derby as well and just put a bender and on keeneland's another race right 
Keeneland is a racetrack over in Lexington okay. that is actually the most beautiful racetrack, in my opinion, in America. And you're, a, you're, you're, you're a big horse racing guy. Big horse racing guy. Uh, and so, yeah, can, can you tell both my DUIs <laughs> uh, came from a horse track and horse racing? How, right? did you, how did you make, how did you navigate the waters through that with those, with those high school buddies? Because you say they're high school bros. They really are like family. Yeah, no, we, we, um, they would come up twice a year. We must've done this for about 10 years before, uh, 2008 when I screwed it all up. Um, but we have, we would have designated drivers, like, you know, somebody's wife or a couple of wives would be there, but we would just get smashed from 8am, uh, out tailgating a lot all the way through the day and have like the greatest weekend of the year at Keeneland a couple of times. So that, so anyway, my, 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 playground playmates were my high school posse uh, and to the, to you know to this day like nobody makes me laugh more no nope. <laughs> i don't feel as as great as i do with anybody other than these guys uh, there's just something about the connection we had when uh you're, you're you have two daughters now one of them is in med school where, where, where's the other one uh the oldest uh kelsey is uh, was a teacher now stay at home about to deliver her third child, my third grandchild here <laughs> in a month. She is in uh, Elkhorn, Wisconsin, married to a tennis pro at a club. And my youngest is, she, you know, she's my family's from Wisconsin. Uh, her husband's family's from Milwaukee area. So they're, they're close. They're doing well. And then my youngest is at Marion university. Uh, first year med student. And, one of your daughters was in a, 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 a terrible accident. Uh, yeah. Were, were you sober at the time, or was this before you stopped drinking? Uh, yes, I was sober. This was in 2014-ish. And, and I, I got a call, 2013, 2014, uh, uh, I got a call. I was up in Wisconsin. My mom was dying and um, uh, of COPD, horrible, dying this horrible death. I went home like 12 times in a year and, and I got this call, and uh, and then initially from my wife, Brand has been a terrible accident. She was crossing Hurstbourne Lane, and some woman hit her and her, her friend at 45, 50 miles an hour. Brand went through the windshield, uh, has fractured skull, fractured wrist, fractured tibia and fibula, and uh, is in really bad shape. And so I grabbed my stuff, told my dad. We didn't tell my mom so she wouldn't freak out. I jumped in the car, start this six and a half, seven hour trip back to Louisville, and I had like a, I had like a peace about me. It was really weird. Like, I I I, I credit recovery. Um, maybe it's my faith. Maybe it's recovery. I don't know what it is, but I had a peace. Even then, when a few minutes later I got a call on my cell when I was on the road from the surgeon, saying, "Hey, John, it's a little bit worse than." Brenda had described she has a fractured skull and we have bleeding on the brain and you very well know in news like that's not good that's that this could be really really bad but we're going to get in there right now and try to get to it and I still uh, I still surprisingly Pete was pretty good uh, pretty I was at peace and not shaking not crying uh just put in God's hands put in your higher power's hands and um and all, all I can do is I focus on what can I bring to the table? I can be a sober, uh, motivating, loving, encouraging person through a tragedy like this. How did you lean on recovery uh, during this 
this this uh, what I would imagine is just a, a really tough time. Um, I I never I never had to worry about you know there are times when I have to worry about drinking and, and worry about recovery and and things like that. I never really had to think much about it. It was it was so programmed into me. And I'll tell you, like I, I, another observation I've had over the years is there's a there's one slice of the pie of people that drink when times are bad. And there are another slice, a smaller slice, of people who drink when times are good, when things are going really well. It's almost like a celebration. I was that kind of drinker. I was not a drowning my sorrows kind of drinker. I was a drink drinker when uh, when times are good. So I, you know, drowning your sorrows, uh, times are tense, I need to turn to the bottle. I was not that kind of guy, so I really didn't have to worry as much about that at a time like that for me. It's just unbelievable that you were able. I, I love the story about getting in the car and having that peace about you. It's because uh, it, you can tell, but there's a spiritual connection going on there that's bigger than you, bigger than me. And, uh, you know, an understanding in a moment where it's really hard to fathom anything. Yeah, you can't. I mean, I was about to say you can't really train for a moment like that, but you can train for a moment like that, right? That's the reason why you do the serenity prayer at the end of every meeting. And, and that's the why you, you know, call your sponsor. And I, I'm, I'm sure I called my sponsor on the road. And I don't remember the conversation, but I don't remember a lot of, you know, kind of, you're kind of floating above it all. I, you know, I do remember getting back and walking in the ER at like three in the morning and my very best friend from church was already in there. And, and you take note of the people, you know, who show up at a time like that in your life. Um, but it, it was, fortunately for us, she suffered no brain damage, and one leg was shorter than the other. But uh, from the from the the break was actually very similar to what remember what Kevin Ware suffered in that oh gosh Global Duke game? sure yeah matter of fact Kevin Ware came up to the room to see my daughter because the the he was still around Louisville and huh. he heard about it yeah Kevin Ware came up and visited her I took pictures of it and everything he he was fantastic. Um, so no, everything turned out great, and she didn't have any brain damage, and she still has plates in her head, but she's getting straight A's. And uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm just so lucky and blessed. Uh, a couple more things before I let you get out of here, because this is unbelievable. Well, you, and this is, I'm going to be selfish here. You mentioned Kevin Ware. How, how did you cover the whole Patino scandal as things unraveled there? I was on the anchor desk. I was. They had me anchor all the breaking news cuttings around noon. Uh, that day when he, they let him and Jurich go, it was, man, it was one of the most surreal things I've ever seen in my life. Like seeing Rick Pitino go in and have to get his stuff. And, oh my God. You know, in humiliation, you know, it's just another, it's, it's back to the subject of humiliation. Like it's, Nobody's you never know, wrong. man. You never know. You never know every day when you get up, like what's going to happen next to who, Who's involved in what? Hammer's going to come down on who? What could? And even with yourself, I mean, you have—I have no idea. I could go in today, and they could pull me in the office and say, "Man, we're going to have to let you go," yeah. like for whatever reason. Like you never know. So you just got to be—you got to be trained up, man. You got to be twelve stepped up, ready to go. Was there any talk? Did you know any rumors about this Patino stuff before? Unsubstantiated stuff, or was was it a total shock to you? It was a total shock. We got, you know, like about an hour before he got let go, one of our people at our station gave us that, the, the heads up that 
they were going to let him go. So I, like we knew that was going to happen, but just the whole scene as he's being called into these meetings and all that was beyond surreal. Yeah. Cause that's, kinda is. yeah. And you're, well, you said you're trained up, you, you know, he's, he's got to be trained up. You've got to be trained up. I've got to be trained up for moments like that, but you're trained up for a, a moment to deliver uh, that right, situation right. to the public. Right. And that's right. That's kind of, uh, Oh, I gotta, I gotta be, I gotta be the best anchor that I can be. And I've got to, I've got to talk about what's going on. Um, what's going on around. Like, I'll give you a really good example of, you know, the, the Brianna Taylor protest. Yeah. Probably the low point in my entire career was that the three days, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, during the protest in Louisville over the, over the death of Brianna Taylor, uh, end of May. Um, I mean, we got Molotov cocktails coming over the fence. I'm, you know, trying to erupt news vehicles. I'm driving my old beater into, into work, thinking for sure it's going to be destroyed. Um, and we're on the air for, you know, three, four, five hours at a time on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I, Pete, I got more hate mail in those three days than in my entire career combined, counting the DUI and firing and humiliation. And what were people saying to you? Uh, it, it was about 50-50. It was the accusation of in my coverage that you're pro-police and the other half is you're anti-police. Pro-protester, anti-protester. It's people coming at us from both sides of the issue angry at the things we're saying or pointing out or doing unbelievable it was the first time first and only time in my whole career that i ever just wanted to just bow out and just said this is not worth it like if this is the way people are um but you know what i did like uh and it's been one of the keys to recovery for me it's, and it's funny because my uh, it wasn't somebody in aa that suggested this to me it was my book publisher of all people Carol Butler said to me when I was walking out of her office one time, said, you know what you need to do? You need to go be the eight-year-old John now. You need to go be, before you were corrupted by the world and dealing with all this stuff, like you need to go be the eight-year-old that John was once upon a time. And, of course, that's not accounting for the fact that eight-year-old John was still low on dopamine way back <laughs> then, right? Yeah. Uh, but it was a good point, right? Like, so I got into I went got into fiction, and that is what's kind of saved my butt through all this. And and then going back to the the Taylor protest, like dude, I packed my fiction stuff in the car, and I got off the air at like two thirty in the morning, one like that last night, and I took off for Green River, and I sat there in the ultimate serenity, the ultimate other end of the spectrum from what I had just been dealing with the hate and the protests and what was going on and the shootings. And I stood waist deep in 68 degree water <laughs> with owls communicating to each other back and forth across the river, beavers swimming by me, coyotes howling once in a while, beautiful moon above, fish biting. And it was fantastic. It's the way life is meant to be lived. And what do you learn about yourself in a moment like that? Oh, uh, I learned where, I can find my serenity is right there. And I learn my higher power is like, I feel like I'm touching. It's like right there. And I feel like I get the strength to go on because this is what's going on around us, man. This, this is going to keep green river, you know, a hundred years from now is going to be the same thing, man. Same scene, same thing. And we're going to be going through all this crap and it doesn't matter.
How, how does 2009 John Bull deal with the Brianna Taylor situation? Oh, my off, God. Off the court. Oh, my God. Well, they used to, like, the number one thing in the newsroom back then was, all right, what's your rant of the day? And I would go on my rant of the day right there in the newsroom about something political or something news-wise or whatever. And, and oh, no, now, now this, this during the Taylor protest, I was calm, cool, and collected. My, my co-anchor was getting angry. Uh, and what was going on behind the scenes with coverage and with the hate mail. And I just was like, focus. Like, we have a lot of people r- relying on us right now. And just be objective. But don't be plastic. Like, the, the consultants always tell news anchors, you have to provide value beyond the content. You don't just stand there and describe what is going on. You ask the hard questions. Hey, wow. We're eight hours into this, and we haven't heard from the police chief yet. And the entire city is burning and being looted. We haven't heard from the mayor. Like, where, where are the people answering our questions? Like, you got to ask real questions. You got to be a real person, and it helps to be a real sober person when you're doing that. And I, look, you got to hang in there and take this compliment. I know I mentioned Nick, who's a buddy of mine, who who works with John as a, he's a reporter at Wave in Louisville, and. I, I've I heard about you before I heard about you. I mean, he would t- constantly talk about you, just how you're, you're cool, your calm demeanor, and your attractive personality. And it's real, and that's sobriety, right? Like, you can sit here and do this, conver- have this conversation with me, and people listen, and it'll be like, oh, man, this John Bowl, he's a real swell guy. But, you know, at the behind the curtain, I got a guy who works with you every day who's telling me the same thing. So well, that's, what mean, that's what means the most, Pete, when you hear stories like that. And, and I... And I hear more and more stories like that now, and it, it makes me feel so good because they weren't telling those stories years ago. And that, I mean, that's that's what life's about, man. It's the let le- the legacy you leave, and and how you change people's lives. Like I feel like I'm a, a mentor and a motivator, for instance, to Nick. And it's so great as you get older now. Like I've just turned sixty. Um, it, it it isn't great to win Emmy awards uh, now. It, it was back once upon a time. It's great to see other people flourish and get better and become better people. And then, and then when you can see that they really value you as a person, not as a partier or a social guy or whatever, that, and there's where the value lies in your life. Uh, well, John Bull, I could keep you here all day, but then, you know, somebody's got to deliver the news in Louisville. So. <laughs> I got to go read that teleprompter, buddy. I <laughs> know you got you got you got to go be real. Hey, anything else you want to leave me with? Anything else about you? No, anything I, I, anything you I left the, out? No, the I mean, remember people listening. Remember the, the dopamine thing. I mean, that's a and keep reminding yourself of that. And um, and changing playgrounds and playmates, even though it's hard, it's necessary. And you in the the stories we hear of failure, oftentimes are I got back with the old posse, you know. There's something about there's something about euphoric recall, and I heard in the uh, when you were talking to Mark Sapelta in the podcast about having an exit strategy. Like people ask me, you know, all the time, like like what, like how, doesn't it bother you to go into a sports bar or a or whatever? And, and you know, the truth is, is I never. I tell my wife this: I never know. Like I never know. I can go in to a sports bar watching NFL playoff football with some guys from work. And never want to have not even a thought of drinking and be totally cool. And then I can have other times where I'm, you know, at a restaurant with my wife and just don't want to drink at all, but walk by the bar and make have a smell 
hit me that triggers euphoric recall or, or be at a family event and people are drinking and I'll start to remember the old days and like want to drink. And I can just turn to my wife and say, all right, it's time to go. And she knows because we've talked about it ahead of time, exit strategy, get out of there and then go, go do something different. How do that you, is what works, that is what works for me. How do you, you mentioned the dopamine, how, how, how do you, is there a way you would suggest making up for that dopamine that people lack? Because when we get sober, we're still going to lack it, right? What, what, what do you, how do you right. find, how do you find that extra dopamine today? That's a huge deal, man, because I mean, that's, think about that. Now you've taken away the dopamine boost. You're right back to where you were before. That's why that some, you know, people say can't live with it. Can't live without it. Right. That's, that's the double-edged sword. That's the horror. That's the horrible part of addiction. Um, and for me, again, you got to find something that is a dopamine boost that doesn't involve it. Like, so for me, it's, it's fishing, it's, and it's training for triathlons. And it's spending time now with family and grandkids. All right, John, I'm going to let you go, let you go get, get to work, man. But I cannot thank you right. enough for giving me this time thank today. Thank you for having me on. Uh, great to talk to you. You do a great podcast, man. Thanks, man. I'll be in touch with you, bro. Appreciate it. Okay, see ya. Yep. See you, John. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And, of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And, of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.